I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi. Laura and I are excited that Play Me will be returning this January with a whole new series of plays. But in the meantime, please enjoy this encore presentation, which is a show from our archives that was recently aired on CBC Radio 1. This presentation, just in time for your holiday binging, is a clean version with some of the course language edited or dipped out. If you wish to hear the original show without any of these edits, you can find the original show further in our podcast feed. Until the new year, you can always listen to Play Me on CBC Radio 1 Sunday nights at 9 and Wednesday nights at 11. Happy holidays. This is Play Me, your digital theater. We transform the hottest contemporary plays into bingeable audio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. Welcome to Play Me, your ticket to some of the hottest plays turned audio dramas by award-winning playwrights. We're back with the next play in our season, The Boy in the Moon, by Governor General Award finalist Emile Scher, adapted from the best-selling book by Globe and Mail journalist Ian Brown. You probably know Ian Brown from his days on CBC Radio and his articles for the Globe and Mail. He is also the author of many books, including the award-winning memoir, The Boy in the Moon, A Father's Search for His Disabled Child. It documents his experience raising his son, Walker, born with a rare genetic mutation that only a few hundred others in the world share. The condition causes debilitating physical issues, meaning Walker cannot speak or even eat on his own. Playwright Emile Scher has brought Ian's writings to life by adapting them into a play for the stage. He combines text from the award-winning book and interviews with Ian, his wife writer Johanna Schnellner, and their daughter Haley. The result is an unflinching look at the uncertainty of parenthood, the fragility of life, and what it means to be human. Boy in the Moon is one of the most moving plays we've ever featured on Play Me, and we're honored to share it with you now. This is The Boy in the Moon by Emile Scher, based on the book by Ian Brown, featuring David Storch, Lisa Repo Martel, and Kelly McNamee. Every night is the same. I wake up in the dark to a steady, motorized noise. Something wrong with the water heater? But it's not the water heater. It's my boy. Walker. Walker. 
grunting as he punches himself in the head again and again. I count the grunts as I pad my way into his room, one a second. To get him to stop hitting himself, I have to lure him back to sleep, which means taking him downstairs and making him a bottle. That sounds simple enough, doesn't it? But with Walker, everything is complicated. Because of his syndrome, he can't eat solid food by mouth. He takes in formula through the night via a um, feeding system. The formula runs along a line from a feed bag and a pump on an IV stand through a hole in Walker's sleeper and into a, a thing, a permanent valve in his belly, sometimes known as a Mickey. To take him out of bed and down to the kitchen to prepare the bottle that will ease him back to sleep, I have to disconnect the line from the Mickey. To do this, I first have to turn off the pump in the dark so he doesn't wake up completely and close the feed line. If I don't clamp the line, the, the, the stuff, the sticky formula pours out onto the bed and I have to change the sheets or the floor. The floor in Walker's room, the carpet in his room is pale blue. There are patches that feel like the Gobi Desert under my feet from all the times I've forgotten. To crimp the tube, I thumb a tiny red plastic roller down a slide. That's my favorite part of the routine. One thing, at least, is easy, under my control. I unzip his one-piece sleeper. Walker is small and grows so slowly he will wear the same sleepers for a year and a half at a time. Reach in, unlock the line from the Mickey, pull the line out through the hole in his sleeper, and hang it on the IV stand. Close the Mickey, re-zip the sleeper. Then I reach in and lift all 45 pounds of Walker from the depths of his crib. He still sleeps in a crib. It's the only way we can keep him in bed at night. He can do a lot of damage on his own. But there is another complication here. Before I can slip downstairs with Walker for a bottle, the bloom of his diaper pillows up around me. He's not toilet trained. Without a new diaper, he won't fall back to sleep and stop smacking his head and ears. So we detour from the routine of the feeding tube to the routine of the diaper. I spin 180 degrees to the battered changing table, wondering, as I do every time, how this will work when he's 20 and I'm 60. The trick is to pin his arms to keep him from whacking himself, but... How do you change a 45-pound boy's brimming diaper while immobilizing both his hands so he doesn't bang his head or reach down and scratch his backside, thereby smearing excrement everywhere? I hold his left hand with my left hand and tuck his right hand out of commission under my left armpit. I've done it so many times, it's like walking. I keep his heels out of the disaster zone by using my right elbow to stop his knees from bending and do all the actual nasty business with my right hand. My wife, Johanna, can't manage this alone anymore and sometimes calls me to help her. I am never charming when she does. And the change itself. A task to be approached with all the delicacy of a munitions expert in a Bond movie defusing an atomic device. 
the unfolding and positioning of the new diaper, the disbelief that it will ever hold, the immense surging relief of finally refastening it. We made it! The world is safe again! The reinsertion of his legs into the sleeper. There are nights when nothing works, and nights when he's up and at it, laughing, playing, crawling all over me. I don't mind those nights, tired as I am. His sight is poor, but in the dark, we are equal. In the night, there can be stretches when he is no different from any other lively boy. Makes me almost cry to tell you that. Sometimes watching Walker is like looking at the moon. You see the face of the man in the moon, yet you know there is actually no man there. But if Walker is so insubstantial, why is he so important? My wife, Johanna Schneller. Hi. So the book is Ian's journey, and I'm totally fine with that. I have no regrets or anything about him writing it in that way. Uh, I mean, uh, the first thing I read was in the Globe and Mail, and I didn't read it until everyone was reading it. Mm -hmm. I remember it came out around Christmas time when we were going to all these cocktail parties. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the only line that makes me snort is when Ian is giving Walker formula and we had to cut the nipples to make them bigger. And Ian says, I look at the nipples that I cut. I can't even say the line because Ian never cut any nipples in his life. I did. Ian was my teacher, guest lecturer at Radcliffe for seven years. No, no, no. I was the permanent writing instructor. On staff for summers, and I was the sixth of seven summers. Were you? Yeah. I think there was one summer after me. There was no need. <laughs> <laughs> well, I fell madly in love with him right off the bat and confessed to him that I felt this way, and then for the next three years we commuted from Between, uh, Toronto to, and, and New York. Mm -hmm. When I first saw him, <laughs> I spent the next six weeks plotting to get him alone. He would have these tutorials, and if you got the last tutorial of the day, you could take him out for a drink. There was a sign-up sheet, and for the first two weeks, every slot was taken. There were 86 of us in the class, and 60 were girls, fresh out of college. <laughs> I was 22. He was 30. It was 1984. I just graduated and ended up moving to New York to make my fortune. And then Ian got a book deal to write a book about Canadian Tire. That was our first mistake. The Canadian Tire book or moving in with me? Oh, no, that was the best thing that had ever happened to me at that at point. At that point. Then Haley came along. After we were married. We met in 84, got married in... 89. 89. Yeah, we met in 84, I moved up in 87, we got married in 89, but then we moved back to the States in 1990 to L.A. So we were in L.A. from 90 to 94, and during that time, Haley was born. Haley was the best thing that had ever happened to me, but I wasn't sure we could afford a second child. I wanted Haley to have allies in her future fights with us. I liked the idea of a larger family, but Johanna and I were both writers, and we never had much money. 
I wanted some reassurance that I would not have to give up my ambitions. A friend said, tell your wife you don't want to be a stay-at-home dad. Which I did. To which Johanna said, I know. As a young, single man, I had often seen married couples arguing in the street or eating dinner together in restaurants, silent for half an hour at a time. Why do that? I thought to myself. Later, after I married, uh, I would see couples harried by children and wonder, why do that? And to see a couple with a disabled child filled me with horror. Not the sight of the child, but the thought of the burden. That's the kettle. I'll be right back. Who do I love that I've interviewed? Um, well, there's a there's a couple people I've interviewed that have actually read the book, the Walker book. Interestingly, um, Diane Keaton, Julianne Moore. Um, <laughs> what is what is going on over there? She's got her collar caught in the. She's oh. not the brightest. <laughs> Ginny's cheerful. She doesn't have to be smart. Um, who do I love that I've interviewed? I, I love Emma Thompson. I love her. I want to befriend her. Um, Johnny Depp was as sweet as can be. Robert Downey Jr. stands out. Hi. Hi. Oh, you want the car? Yeah. You back for dinner? Yeah. Great. Um, and Julia Roberts is mean. Tell everyone. I have interviewed her twice and she is so mean. Tell the uh, Annette Benning story. Um, yeah, I had this amazing interview with Annette Benning where she said, do you have kids? And I, I kind of struggled about how to answer the question even. So you could um, just say yes and end it there. Right. Or you could say, you know, well, my daughter, blah, 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 never really answered the question. So I kind of stumbled over the answer and I said, yeah, well, I have two and my, my son has this rare genetic syndrome. Anyway, and then we moved on. And then at the end of the interview, she said, do you have a couple of minutes? And I said, yeah. And she said, I want to ask you about your son. And it was just so sweet and everything. I just, I was just really grateful to have this little human moment, you know? I think, I think also because I never really talked about Walker very much, not even to my closest friends, you know, and I've got great friends. We talk about everything, you know, we talk about our, um, our husbands and, uh, you know, bosses, kids, but, uh, yeah, it was just the one thing I, I, I didn't talk about. But yeah, no, in terms of what uh, Ian was saying before about expectations, yeah, it was always a fear of mine. And we had the, the whole thing, the blood test, the amnio, the whole nine yards. There was no genetic test for his syndrome when he was born. There still isn't. I mean, if there had been a test when I was pregnant that would have revealed what Walker's life would be like, I would have had an abortion. But, you know, we were young, we got pregnant right away, and there was, there was every chance we could have another normal child, a normal sibling for Haley. But then you wouldn't have had Walker. No, I mean, you can't say after I've known Walker would I have done anything to get rid of him. It's, it's you know, it's one thing to abort an anonymous fetus. It's another thing to murder Walker. <laughs> A fetus wouldn't be Walker. What do you think the world would be like without people like Walker, without kids like him? I mean, kids who have, like, real setbacks. 
Yeah, I mean, a world where there were only masters of the universe would be like Sparta. It would not be a kind country, but I'm not the person to ask. What do you mean? I still have mixed feelings about everything I've done and everything I haven't done. <laughs> um, yeah, I hear parents of disabled kids saying all the time, you know, I wouldn't change my child. I wouldn't trade them for anything. Uh, but I would. If I could trade Walker for the most ordinary kid that got C's in school, I would do it in a heartbeat. Not for my sake or for our sake, but for his sake. I think Walker has a very, very hard life. Okay, okay. The birth story. I was at work hosting a three-hour weekly public radio show. Johanna called after the second hour. She was in labor. Her voice was only a notch off its usual calm. Johanna took a taxi to the hospital, one that uh, specializes in women's health. I finished work and met her there. Her own doctor was on holiday. The delivery would be supervised by one of her doctor's partners, a tall, mild man named Lake. Walker wasn't his fault, of course, but I never forgave him anyway. Something else was off that day. Besides my wife's regular doctor, the way the boy, we call him the boy, the moment after he came out, slumped in the obstetrician's hand. He was a preemie. What irritated Dr. Norman Saunders... Walker's pediatrician. What irritated Saunders was that the hospital had not called him soon enough after Johanna had delivered an obviously troubled baby five weeks early. It was the 23rd of June, a Sunday. The moment after he came out, his skin is jaundiced, his lungs haven't opened well, he wears a strange, defeated look as if he knows something is wrong. And the interns whisk him off to a table and put an oxygen mask over his tiny mouth and nose. He was six pounds when he was born. And quickly lost a pound. He could only open one eye. We were, uh-oh, right away, but we attributed it to the preeminess for the first while, but Dr. Saunders was the one who said that Walker wasn't just a preemie. He, he knew from the start. Walker needed an hour to ingest half an ounce of milk. His body didn't want to survive. And when he did get it down, he threw it up. He just puked and puked and puked and puked everything. We were feeding him with an eyedropper and he was puking it up. We do want this child to live, don't we? We called Saunders Dr. Doom. His question seemed to imply another. This child cannot live without going to extraordinary lengths. Do you want to go to those lengths and live with the consequences? Was Dr. Doom asking me if I wanted to let Walker's life end? As nature would have ended it? Ian and I have a completely different impression of that encounter. I believe Saunders was saying, we will not let this baby die. I sit on the back steps of our little house in the heart of the city at 4 a.m. smoking and thinking the unthinkable. What if we don't take extraordinary measures? What if he gets sick and we don't work so hard to get him better? Not murder, just nature. Ian's wrong. Ian has it as, you know, we, we might let nature take its course if you want us to, but that's not, that's... Even as I consider these plans, I know I can't enact them. I'm not bragging. My hesitation is not ethical or moral. It's more a medieval urge, instinctual, physical, fear of retribution if I ignore the dull call of his flesh and his body and his need. I believe Saunders was reassuring us. 
he thought we thought Walker was going to die. So he was saying, you know, don't worry, everything will be fine. After years as a freelancer, I had finally landed a full-time gig as host of Sunday Morning on CBC Radio. I was on the cusp of a new chapter in my career when Walker was born, when life changed completely. I could feel the heavy, tragic years coming on ahead of me as certain as bad weather. But, you know, I even welcomed them at last. A fate I didn't have to choose. A destiny I couldn't avoid. There was a tiny prick of light in that thought. The relief of submitting to the unavoidable. We make two or three trips a week to the hospital. Infections of the ears, gasping colds, epic constipation. Rashes, bleeding, dehydration, toothaches. Crying, unstoppable crying. Reality goes 3D in the inferno of the emergency ward. Half a dozen children crying at once, each in a different key. Rossini would have made an opera out of it. And of course, the equally raucous sound, one you can't always hear, but you can always feel feel as a roaring in your ears, the anxieties of the parents. The doctors are always flummoxed by Walker's condition. You learn a geological patience. Always ask the same questions, always want the same details over and over again. Yes, he eats entirely by stomach tube. No. Yes, we have tried feeding him by mouth. No. Chloral hydrate. No. Yes, by prescription. No, no, it's not his ears. I know it's not his ears because I was here yesterday about his ears. It's not his ears. He doesn't cry like this when it's just his ears. Yes, doctor, yes, I waited. I waited five days with him screaming all the time before I even thought thought of of bringing him him here. here. Antiseptic... Coffee, worry, puke, fear, muffins, grief, fresh linen, curtains, hiding unknowable despair, the questions, is it curable, can they see my fear, the inevitable comparison, is my child better off than that child? Through it all, you hold your child's body, hold its flesh and heat close to you like a skin of fire because you have to hang on to what life there is. Just hang on. Just hang on. Just Just hang hang on. In the first year of Walker's life, I really wanted a diagnosis. Because I knew that once we got a diagnosis, we would know what to do. You know, you do this and this and this and this and this. Not that I thought we could fix it, but I thought we could be proactive. We eventually got the diagnosis. Walker was about a year old. They did the tests, and the geneticist says... He has CFC. Cardiofasciocutaneous syndrome. It's a technical name for a mash of symptoms. An impossibly rare genetic mutation. Cardio, ever-present murmurs and malformations. What had been, to that point, a matter of health, something you could fix, was now suddenly a matter of science, carved in genetic stone. There are just over 300 people in the world that have CFC. Like many CFC children, Walker can't chew or swallow easily. He can't speak. His skin is often sensitive to touch to the point of agony. His vision and hearing are compromised. He's thin and wobbly. He's stronger than he looks. Under his birdie limbs, he's grand. Heart defects range from serious to unimportant. Okay. So, what do we do? I'll see you next year. What? 
The house is a well-organized nightmare. You can't survive as the parent of a disabled child if you aren't organized, and my wife is. There are the famous laundry baskets of toys on every floor. Of course, he never plays with the toys. That's not true. He plays with them, but he was good for only about three minutes, but you couldn't leave him and run to get another one. Plastic activity boards hanging out the backs of the chairs in the kitchen and the living room. He loves to touch things. The bottom three slats of every window blind in the house are mangled. The light switch. The fascinating toilet paper tube. Anything that beeps or flickers. The best part is the way he explodes with laughter and rocks into a ball of glee at some mysterious thing, which passersby love. For a while, I suspected he was rubbing his penis between his thighs, a traditional source of merriment for all boys. He loves to clear tables and flat surfaces, especially closely guarded ones. He goes for glasses of wine, which seem to catch his eye, so we call him... The Temperance Man. His desires are invisible, unspoken, but that doesn't mean he has none. Here's one evening... I leave him in an enclosed hallway at the foot of some stairs in a friend's elegant house while we have dinner. I know he can't climb stairs, and I know he can't open a door. Ten minutes later, I hear a tinkling sound, a beautiful sound, a sound like the air breaking, but unusual enough to go and see what it is. It's Walker. He has done the unimagined and climbed the stairs and opened the door and is now gleefully... And deliberately... ...smashing the last of seven wine glasses on a Noguchi coffee table. Not a scratch on him. We come to call that evening... Kristallnacht. Not a particularly joke. funny joke, but if you spend a lot of time with a disabled child, a child who was not supposed to live and whose survival has radically changed your life, especially if said child is your child, you feel you can break the rules. He loves women. The prettier, the better. He climbs into a woman's lap, immediately peers down her neckline, and then he feels her up. I thought it was accidental, a result of his condition, but Johanna says... It's hereditary. He loves anything shiny, fingering it close to his wonky eyes. Our friends call him the jeweler. I never stop wondering if we're imagining Walker's progress, inventing the connections we think he's making. Does he really say hey, hey, when Haley is nearby? Or is he just breathing? When I say goodbye to him and lean down and kiss him, does he really say bye? Or is he just breathing? Johanna hears it too. He just said goodbye. She will say, followed by... I'm gonna cry. He makes people feel things. But what 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 does does he he feel? feel? Does Does the boy I see Beneath his stolid surface, beneath the dead, calm pond of his mind, actually exist? Or is it just wishful Wishful thinking? thinking? When Walker was little, we started renting a cottage on an island in Georgian Bay. It was the first place I ever imagined him having an inner life, a life private 
from the rest of us, and it is there. One summer afternoon, as everyone rests after a day of swimming, that Johanna snaps a shot of him on the soft blue couch in the living room, the sun glowing through the wraparound windows. The spitting image of his father as a kid. Hmm. Maybe that's why I like it. It's proof of our bond. I see his slim thighs, his tan. A oh, tan. He has his head on his hands and his knees are up. He's wearing a blue sweatshirt and a pair of checked shorts. Haley's cast-offs. It's as close as we ever got to a picture of what might have been. It even feels slightly dishonest. How do you manage? I was asked at a cocktail party. A friend replied, She does everything. I resented the idea because I knew it wasn't true. Johanna was always there, but because she feels everything deeply, a severe patch of pain or illness or unhappiness in Walker crushed her with sadness, and her sadness could then paralyze her. It's true. Ian really stepped up at times when I couldn't. And he was always so great with Walker. Walker kind of draws my dad out of any mood, which is interesting. Like, he very much... They do have this weird connection that I don't even know. Maybe my mom's jealous of it. I've never talked to her about it, but, um... I mean, maybe as his wife, I would be. Just, like, he kind of has this power over my dad that no one else has takes him out of his writer's world it's one of my favorite sections of the book we recline in the we tub we recline in the tub the smooth of his naked back the smooth of chest. his naked back against my he chest is he is as calm as a pond his nipples, his nipples are minute literally the size of rivets his shoulder blades and the bones of his back are oddly soft, plastic, bendable, as if covered by some miracle upholstery. At first, when he was an infant, baths upset him. But if you got the temperature right and sat quietly with him long enough, slowly replacing the cooling water with hot, he calmed down long enough to enjoy it, briefly until you rinsed his hair or delivered a new shocking sensation to his exterior. Over time, he grew to like the bathwater. It seemed to free his all-too-loosely-linked limbs, lighten the load gravity imposed on them. He laughs more when he's in the bath. <laughs> of course, I like to think he laughs because he's with me, but that's absurd. He'll laugh with almost anyone. anyone. My favorite photograph of them all, Walker is standing in the sunroom of our house, gazing intently at my old manual typewriter. His hands and fingers are splayed across the keys. He looks as if he's making progress. An illusion not uncommon to writers. He's dressed in the red plaid shirt that I gave him, and he's ready to type with plenty to say and the glint of someone eager to say it. Maybe he's seen us 
hunched this way so often. Maybe the photograph depicts genuine curiosity, a moment of clarity. Or so I think, until the space around my eyes begins to ache and I can't look at that picture any longer. You do more of the hunching. Meaning? You can't not do it. Writing. I don't want to say it's a calling. A calling is too grand a word, but it's... It's part of the fabric of your being in a way that it's not so much mine. You're more, no, you're, it's more integrated into who you are. That's why I, I protect your space, your ability to write. So it wouldn't matter if you didn't write. Is that what you're saying? We're not the same writer. Look at this from the woman who gets up every morning uh, and goes downstairs and makes some notes, who writes a column every week, who has written uh, four scripts this year. You know, I'm just saying. Well, did you ever feel like you had to protect me as a writer, protect my sacred space for writing? I don't think so. Whereas I felt... Yeah, that you, you didn't need it as much. I have a different attitude toward it. That is what I am saying. My approach is different. I don't know if that's... The I mean, I don't want to argue about this, but I would say you are less permeable than I am. Permeable? I'm a sucker for a point of view. Something comes up, it soaks into me. You're tougher than that. You're more focused and disciplined. I'm less imaginative. No. No, I think that's true. Anyway, <laughs> that's, that's what I was trying to do for you. Whether you felt it or not, protect your space. I think that's probably true. I love Walker's Frankenstein walk, his pulpy hands, but to hear him say, You data, would be the Gettysburg address, to hear him call Haley. To say, Ma, I love you. Loud and clear. I have dreams all the time where he talks. And then in, in the dream, it'll start out with him being his nonverbal self. But then I'll notice he seems to have understood what I've said to him. And in the next couple of sentences, he'll say things that sound like a word. Bishwick. And I'll say to him, Walker, did you say this? Yes. And all of a sudden, he's able to say a couple of words, and then by the end of the dream, he's speaking. Yeah, I've been doing this all along. And he's super philosophical, a little Descartes. Ooh, a little Descartes. And then I wake up, and I feel great. You would think I'd feel terrible, but... If he could answer a question, what would you ask? I wouldn't know where to start. Start with one question. Do you dream at night? What do you think about? How do you think without words? How much have you understood? We took Walker to this physiotherapy, and he sobbed through the whole thing. Sobbed. And I would sob. We would pull into the driveway of that place, and he would start to cry. So he knew. He knows places. He knows people. 
Just as Walker turned two, he began to grab his ears and bite himself. He didn't stop for a year and a half. We thought he had a toothache, an earache. He quickly graduated to punching himself in the head. He puts his body behind these punches the way a good boxer does. Haley called it bonking, so we did too. The irony was that he had been making progress. He could track objects, wave goodbye, often babbled like a madman. Then he flipped into blackness. When people saw his bruises, they wondered, what were we doing to our child? He had this little birthday party for him, and he was just black and blue from head to toe. And he cried through the whole thing, and I was just frantic with worry, and all our friends were like, happy birthday, wa!" Oh... Everybody knew something was up. Sometimes Walker was in agony as he smacked himself and screamed with pain. Other times he seemed to do it more expressively as a way to clear his head or or to let us know that he would be saying something if he could talk. Other times, and this was unbearably sad, he would laugh immediately afterwards. He can't tell us Anything, So we have to imagine everything. More specialists crowded into our lives. Dr. Saunders tried Prozac, Celexa, Risperidone, nothing. Nothing worked. Once in Pennsylvania, Walker (sighs) bit his hand to the bone. And after an hour in surgery, spent the night in the hospital. (laughs) The bill was $14,000. Money talk is radioactive. Walker's Karen formula suck away more than $40,000 a year. Prescription costs, medical devices, even the toll for parking at the hospital for sick children where we felt we lived half the time. In Dr. Doom's office. Dr. Saunders' notes began to track longer and longer stretches of horror. I remember one morning the grief-stricken look on Walker's face as he bashed himself. He looked straight at me. He seemed to know it was bad and wrong. He knew he was hurting himself. He wanted to stop and couldn't. Why can't I? His normally thin gruel of a wail became frightening and loud. It is the sound of misery. Why does he do it? Because he wants to talk and can't? When Walker hits himself? It's really hard. The noise is even worse. It sounds like someone throwing a bag of flour on the ground. When he's hitting himself on the third floor, you can feel it on the ground floor. And whenever it happens, I mean, I can't handle it. I have to stop it. No matter what happens, I have to stop it. We develop these strategies. Walker responds to being held and comforted, you know, compacted. If you can help him organize his body, he can calm down. If he's hitting himself at night and I manage to isolate and immobilize one hand here and my hand around his head and holding the other arm and my leg across one of his legs because he will kick himself if his hands are restrained and somehow get this hand on the other leg... If I can hold him still and sing to him a bit, he will calm down and go to sleep. But you know, it takes a bit of work getting there. My big fear is that he's trapped. I can't help but believe that he senses that he's different and would rather not be. I fear for his loneliness. Lately, I've begun to think that he's aware of it too. Suddenly aware that he's not like everyone else, albeit unconsciously. So he bonks his head over and over and over again. There are a lot of times I thought, I can't do this. 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 
I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. I saw a woman walking around Loblaws with her 40-year-old son. I can't. 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 When you get into the dark places, it's like being on some strange river. You're going down the strange river and you don't know where you're going and your mind is showing you things that are... You either drown or wash up on the rocks and stagger out. Do your ears hang low? Do they wobble to and fro? Can you tie him in a knot? Can you tie him in a bow? Olga. Olga sings to Walker in the screened-in porch of a little uh, sub-cabin by the shores of the lake. She saved our lives. She had been looking after the dying mother of a prominent capitalist when we found her through the Filipino nanny mafia. Haley was a year old. Olga had worked around the world as a caregiver and a maid after being forced to give up nursing school in Manila to provide for her family. When Walker appeared, two years later, trouble from day one, Olga enveloped him. He was a shorter version of her. Compact, intent, difficult to distract. We could never pay her enough for what she did. She washed his clothes and kept his room and managed his meds and fed him and changed him. I mean, we all did all of that. But uh, I'm not saying you didn't. I know. Okay. No, I cannot overestimate the power of her in our lives. She shouldered a ton. She should get the Order of Canada. I'm serious. This is, this is the Zen of Olga. She doesn't care if they spend five hours in Walker's room, if that's what he wants to do. She had no special qualifications to deal with a boy as complicated as Walker. Beyond endless patience, an imagination... An eccentric sense of humor, cast iron reliability... A love of the cell phone... And a massive heart that does not distinguish between the needs of one person and the next. Olga's very, like... She's not very tolerant of people making fun of Walker. Just like kids stare at kids, and I get that. But Olga makes a very large point of, like, calling people out on that. <laughs> Do your ears flip-flop? Can you use them as a mop? mop? Are they stringy at the bottom? Are they curly, curly at, at the top? top? Mm -hmm. The tune and words to Do Your Ears Hang Low float from that veranda across the water again and again and again like puffs of love Walker loves to glide out on my lap in a kayak dragging his hand over the side like an insect feeling the watery surface of its world I natter on endlessly into his ear I don't mind that he never answers 
after a bad night or in the morning after Olga comes up from her cabin to take over, I stumble down the path to the lake. I see my long-legged wife already stretched out by the water, greedily tanning and reading, and I'm happy for her, and I'm angry with her, and I'm exhausted, but the same pang shoots through me anyway. Why aren't you with the boy? Why aren't you? They fight a lot. It's mostly the same argument. It goes like this. Another sleepless night? Neither of us has slept two full nights in a row in eight years. I head downstairs to the living room to read. Five minutes in, I hear Johanna. No! Walker, no! A minute later, she's at the foot of the stairs. Can you go up and take him? I had him last night for three hours straight in the middle of the night. Forget it. Never mind. Sorry, I have. Wait. Forget it. I'll take him. I said I'll do it. I'll do it. Go back to your book. Pretend we're not here. That's not fair. Don't talk to me about fair at two o'clock in the morning. I shouldn't even be up. You don't have to drag him to the dermatologist for nine. Don't play the guilt card. It's the truth card. You don't want to hear it because... Oh, so you need your sleep more than I do. I did not say that. I said I would go up and take him. What part of take do you not understand? Do not patronize me. I'm not... You you point that finger at me like I'm some five-year-old. I can't stand that jabby finger thing. Jabby finger. That's right. Jabby finger. You heard me the first time. You're an... You're exhausted. You notice. Go to bed. No. I'll take him. To Lauder? Uh, who? The dermatologist? At nine? Yeah. It's called an appointment. Nine? I heard you the first I time. I can't. Of course not. You need your sleep. I didn't say that. Go, Go to, to bed. bed. What's wrong? Nothing. Sometimes I was too Sometimes tired, I was too to, tired say to, to say hello to Johanna in the morning, and I was often bad-tempered. She was like, she was like someone from the office that you see on the street. A nod, hello, a smile, and then you are apart again. Good morning, she would say. As I stumbled into the kitchen, I would grunt in response. Good morning, she would say again. I admired her, but it was hard to slip in that occasional, unanticipated favor or kindness that holds together any marriage that lasts. I saw her, us, more and more at a remove, from a distance. There are worse arrangements, but this one never seemed to change. Weeks go by without any real contact between us. Maybe it was us not him. I often thought so. There were other families. I knew they existed because I read about them on websites who seemed to cope well. We had been brilliant once, before the boy. I miss those days. The prospect of leaving each other was unthinkable. We were just going to pull this cart Even if we don't like each other, or talk to each other, or anything like that. Sometimes when it's not my turn to put Walker to bed, I go out to bars in the neighborhood. All I ever do is drink, listening to conversations, trying to overhear a scrap of the normal. Sometimes I even go to strip clubs. 
to sit beside my own desire for a while. Remind myself of old habits. Instead of bringing us closer, Walker scatters us. I have a lot of memories of me taking Walker into the basement while my parents were upstairs fighting. Um, Partially it was to get him out of the way because they can't be watching him. But another part was to have an ally because I know even when we got my dog, she became that too. I would bring Ginny with us. There was a kind of brinksmanship. I've got it worse than you. I've got it worse than you. Oh, no, Jonna. I have it worse. No. No. I've got it worse. I have it worse than... I've got it worse. eventually someone would shout. I've got it worse. And seeing that person shatter, the other person would realize they'd gone too far. That this wasn't just a question of someone being an asshole. This was tragedy. And when you see tragedy, you... I didn't realize how much Haley had to deal with. My big worry is that she sussed out very early that we couldn't handle her and him. So she kind of trained herself to need us less. She spent years living in the lonely shadow of Walker's needs. She was an anxious child. The fallout of living in a house where something's always about to burst. I do worry that it made her feel like she had to be really, really good. And I do worry that it made her feel like she could never really tell us the truth about how she was feeling. I was never allowed to be mad at Walker. I think part of why I honestly didn't think about his role in my life was because I didn't have someone to talk to. My parents can be very internal. My dad is a very internal person. I think I internalized a lot of things. I really wanted a couple more kids. I pictured a standing army of kids like Haley that could surround Walker. I fear for her when we're old. I worry about that a lot, a lot. You know, is she going to always feel like she has to live in the town where he lives? Is he going to be a financial burden? Will she feel guilty? I wanted to give Haley a team. It was unthinkable, and I was the one who said no. It's my biggest single regret. I would have had six. (sighs) Get up. You didn't. Yes, I did. I said to Haley, I said, I'm sorry. What did she say? You don't have to apologize. It's my biggest single regret. That and not going to film school. On my desk at work is a picture of Haley reading to Walker. At the cottage. They're lying side by side on a bed, and Walker is looking up at the book in Haley's hands as if riveted by every word. I don't know if he understands a syllable, but he can hear her voice is thrilled to be with her and clearly grasps his smart big sister's affection. 
Would you like to know how to read? A question for Walker. Do you ever have crushes on people? Crushes? Who knows? When people say, does he know you? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I think so. But it's just... I think that's also why this book was so hard, because it's giving Walker this persona when he doesn't have any ability to contribute to it. Like, he doesn't have any words to put into it. My main concern is that people will read the book and think that my dad has spoken for Walker. No one can speak for Walker. No one can speak for Walker. But, um, if uh, I had that yearning for him to speak that my father describes, uh, yeah, all the time. We enroll Walker in Play and Learn, a daycare program for normal and disabled children. The wheels on the bus go round and round, round and round, round and round. The wheels on the bus go round and round, all through the town. From Walker's first Play and Learn report card. Walker enjoys exploring objects by manipulating them. He turns objects through his fingers as he looks at them and has also begun to bang objects together. To my surprise, Walker slowly became bolder, more outgoing. The staff, all women, dedicated teachers of the disabled, optimists who saw hope in everything. Typically, Walker produces open vowels and consonant vowel combinations. Although he will not initiate an interaction, he does enjoy having his peers around. And when a peer is holding his hand, he seems to be content. It was that last line that crushed me. He needs someone to moor him. We learned he was improving at math. (laughs) (laughs) Math! (laughs) And improving. (laughs) Oh, we laughed like hell. Then we kissed him and said, Well Well done, Walkie. Walkie. Two and two is four. What I couldn't tell is what the routines meant to him. Did he know he was painting when the teacher was guiding his hand? He had a friend, Jeremy, but did he know what a friend was? As Walker grew older, we developed a private language of tongue clicks that only he and I speak. All we ever seem to say is, Hello. It's me. I'm clicking to you, and only you, because only you and I speak click. To which he replies, I think. Yes. Hi, I see you there, and I am clicking back. I like it that we speak our private language. In fact, I find it hilarious. The clicks for me? I don't think they mean anything specific, but I do think Walker enjoys being clicked back to. Even though he's not saying something specific, it's a response. Ian thinks Walker hears actual meanings. 
He thinks it's funny. I think he likes to hear it because it's a funny sound. One of my favorite memories was when we took Walker to the AGO. And he was just in the phase when he was first starting to click. And there's these cavernous rooms and his clicking just echoed through the whole place. And he was loving it. He was loving that he was clicking and it was echoing. And he was just in a really good mood. I know we were driving some of the people at the museum crazy. Ian was more acutely aware of that than I. We can't let him do that. He's driving people crazy. He loves driving people crazy. He's a witch. And at that point, I was like, he's having fun. I don't care if they're irritated. I don't care. I didn't always feel that way, but that day I did. Our friends offer to take him, to give us a weekend away. We do this twice in 12 years. I'm a wasp, an English wasp. You do not ask for help. Each time it was a different couple, our closest friends, a single night each time. They volunteer many times before we agree. Caring for Walker is a complicated thing to ask somebody to do, after all. What with all the tubes and feedings and drugs and the incessant hitting and crying. They wear one look on their faces when we drop Walker off. Attentive, but eager. And another look, 36 hours later, when we pick him up. The stunned gaze of passengers on a plane that crash lands safely and miraculously. In a pinch, we try babysitters when Olga was away or unavailable or on New Year's Eve or the big holidays. We'd hire a sitter from agencies that specialize in looking after disabled children. They were... They were first-rate caregivers, mostly unflappable. But it felt a bit like dropping your kid off with a hired invertebrate. I mean, who's available to babysit on New Year's Eve? Several were on the eccentric side. A pathologically shy, limping giantess would arrive at the door, and I would pretend it was the most normal thing on earth to hand over our disabled son... And often our daughter... ...to a stranger for six hours. Oh, hello, one eye. I'm Ian. How are you? Nice to see you. Come on in. Uh, This is Walker. Can you say hi, Walker? Of course, I knew Walker couldn't say hi, but what was I supposed to say? Here, you two seem well-matched. So I said the only thing I could. Uh, Let me show you his room. Here is his food and his clothes. Um, He gets this syringe at this Uh, this, time, and then four cc's of this at this time, and then Then, uh, uh, two cans of of this formula formula every four hours. Which which you administer like... um, Uh, Through this... uh, You touch this um, bit here. um, This um, nozzle. You just have to... Uh, Haley Haley knows what what to do. I was four. It felt a bit like trying to explain the plumbing of a large, complicated house in five minutes before you flew out the door. And we wanted to fly out the door. We're at a Christmas party. An office party. I remember sitting in this bar watching my wife briefly emerge from the cocoon (laughs) of her endless obligations. (laughs) She is huddled at the bar beside a man I know, an old friend of ours, and she is laughing out loud. She's really having a good time. I can see that. I haven't seen my wife laugh like that in my company. I know how to make her laugh. I can make her laugh in ways that other people can't, as husbands and wives can, but not like that. All out, full on in a long time they look intimate their shoulders are touching their drink is the same vodka with tonic I know he's very fond of her 
What the hell is going on over there? I remember thinking. And I know her. I've seen her sobbing unexpectedly at night. I've seen her come downstairs and say, Can you go up and take him? I've seen her at the bottom of the darkness. I thought, how can I go and stop her from having a good time? How can I do that? I can't do that. That's not fair. I forgive her the dark fear she has felt on so many occasions. Her struggle to love her broken boy. I was always willing to step in and help her through that black self-hatred. In that way, sometimes the boy makes us generous, too. You have no idea how much pleasure a person can offer another with the words. That's okay. I'll take him to the doctor. I remember this day. Everything fell apart. The dishwasher broke. The washing machine broke. I was making a left-hand turn in the middle of a busy intersection, and the car died. I didn't care. It didn't matter because those were stupid problems. Those were fixable problems. One of my favorite photographs of Walker shows him sitting in my lap in a reclining lawn chair beside a still lake. I am reading a newspaper, frowning. Walker's leaning back against my chest, laughing like mad. We were both happy then. From June 2001 to the spring of 2003, every entry in Dr. Saunders' records mentions Walker's unhappiness, his irritability. 72 hours, aggressive behavior. Unhappy crying for five days. Screaming all day needs to be held. Mother tearful. At a certain point, I was having so many headaches from holding back crying, I just finally said to myself, people laugh out loud, I'm just going to cry. I learned how to talk through crying. One therapist tells us the way to stop a kid like this hitting himself is with food and toys. Walker doesn't care about any of that stuff. They don't know anything. I see that now. Nobody has been helping us because no one can. They don't know anything. Normally, Johanna was relieved when Walker dropped off to sleep, but one night she came downstairs from putting him to bed, her arms wrapped around herself, sobbing. He's gone. I can't find him anymore. My little boy is gone. Where is he gone? There was chloral hydrate. There were pills. There was the car. Places to drive the car off of. Lakes to walk out into. Can you imagine the magnitude of our failure? We failed to teach Walker to speak to sleep to eat to pee or even to look at us 
constrained by sleeplessness and ashamed of our failure with the boy, I asked myself if it might not be the braver thing to take my own life and to take Walker with me. At our lowest point, we would do anything to feel better. I remember I was at my chiropractor, Anita's, and at the end of the session, she said, I have this idea about Walker. It's pretty woo-woo. She said, I wonder if you would take him to a shaman, a native shaman. And I was just so strung out on Walker, I said, sure. So two weeks later, we go to this native healing center in, in, in a nondescript building. And I'm worried that Walker is going to, I don't know, wreck the shaman's karma by freaking out. But as soon as we walk in, he becomes completely calm. The shaman... Uh, was sitting on a blanket in the middle of this basement floor and there was an interpreter sitting next to her and he had to give her some money or some tobacco as an offering so I gave her 50 bucks and I and I put a package of cigarettes on the blanket and the shaman lights a pipe she lights some sage and she calls to the east wind then she calls to all the other winds and then she calls for Walker. And by now there's a lot of smoke in the room and I have a crashing headache. And the shaman speaks and the interpreter says, The gate appears. I see a tree. It is old and new. Parts of it are dead and parts are alive. And there's a light on the tree and it is full of singing birds. And on the other side of the gate is a well. I see a well so deep you can barely see the water. I see a lot of elders. And the elders have come to see Walker. Maybe they know him. Maybe, maybe he is one of them. The shaman can't tell, but, but they seem to know him anyway. And after the ceremony, the interpreter says, The tree is Walker's life. And the singing birds are all of us. And the well is Walker's quest. And Walker's quest, the purpose of his life, is to see if he can see his reflection in the water at the bottom of the well. This is the path that he has chosen for himself, to see if he can see his reflection. He may or may not, but this is his quest. And then the interpreter asks if I have any specific questions for the shaman. And I say, yes. Why does Walker hit himself? He's trying to find the shape of his reflection in the well. That was a turning point for me. There was just no judgment or fear. It was just very accepting. Instead of trying to fix Walker or make him better or diagnose him or see what was causing his state, it was just who and what he is. 
It isn't a triumph or a tragedy. It just is. To find his shape in the reflection at the bottom of a well. I got a car to the airport, I got a plane to France, I got another car and drove and drove to a tiny stone cottage to find a tall, shy, unassuming man in a pale blue sweater. I asked him, how can I sustain my belief that all the effort I'm making with Walker means anything? He tells me a story about the first person to die in a large home, an assistant named Francois. One of the residents kisses Francois on his way out. Oh, he's cold. And on his way out says, everybody's going to be so surprised I kissed a dead person. He looks at me, shrugs his shoulders. What is happening? To my relief, I wasn't supposed to answer. He was going to tell me. My belief is that he is kissing his own handicap. So accepting people with disabilities is some way of accepting one's own death. This is Jean Vanier, the founder of L'Arche, a global movement where people like Walker are treated as equals. As a young man, Vanier drops everything, moves into a tiny stone cottage in trolley Broye with two intellectually disabled middle-aged men. No indoor plumbing, no electricity. Vanier has no training to speak of. What was he thinking? I thought it might be fun. I find myself telling him that when I feel out of sorts, when nothing works, I feel better if I give Walker a bath. It makes him feel better too, I think. You see, you are bathing your own handicap. It's a point of view I'd never encountered before. I can say that for it. What is it that makes you open your heart to someone else? A weak person. Someone who says... I need your help. We're in a society where we have to know what to do all the time. But if we move instead from the place of our weakness, what happens? We say to others, I need your help. And so we create community. I tell them about our private language of tongue clicks. You see... You're not doing something for him. You're just with him. He's clicking and you're clicking. And I call that communion. Somewhere in Larch, there is the desire to be a symbol. A symbol that another vision is possible. A community of the disabled as a model for how the world might coexist more effectively. I have to say, that struck me as a radical idea, even a gorgeous one. It also struck me as hopelessly unrealistic. I ducked out of that cramped stone cottage in Trolley. I walked down the street, up a lane, across a field. I couldn't tell if I was enthralled or defeated. Vanier says these things. Sometimes they make sense to me. Sometimes they seem the exclusive thoughts of a man with a deep religious faith. I do not share. As Vanier sees it, the disabled are a sign of God that he has sent the foolish 
to confound the strong. So Walker's not a weak link, but an especially strong one. I wish I could believe in Vanier's God, but the truth is I do not see the face of the Almighty in Walker. Look, I want to believe. Every ounce of me knows my odd little boy can teach everyone something about themselves. Whether that will ever happen is another story. Yeah. Uh, the, the whole disability as a gift from God thing. I just have tremendous resentment of people who say things like that. That just, um, yeah, just enrages me. Because I think, you know, right, his whole life is miserable so that my life can be enriched. I just think it's bullshit. You know, I mean, if that's what people need to tell themselves, that's, that's fine. Just don't tell me that. I don't know what Walker's value is to the world, but I'm not sure that I agree that his lasting value is to have touched people. That his whole life has to be this Gandhi thing. I don't think his life should only have value because he makes other people feel more contented with their lives. I think his life should have a value of its own. Among Olga, ourselves, respite care, ad hoc programs, the odd agency, school, and luck, we managed to survive 10 years. Perhaps you can understand why I had begun to look for a way out, for a place for Walker to live outside of our home. I didn't tell Johanna. Eventually, I tentatively raised the subject of Walker moving into a home. Neither of us can face the possibility. I can't. I can't. The emotion is palpable. The struggle I can see in you and the pain you carry around. The roof is coming in. Minda Latowski, a caseworker on Walker's special needs team. Physically, you're shadows of yourselves. You're two people who love your child, who are trying to function as well as you can, who are working and have another child as well. Think about it in future terms. Should Haley suffer as well? Minda found a home for him. The thought of Walker living in a place with big giant adults scares the shit out of me. Who wants to admit you've had a child and you can't raise him? I'm a wreck. I feel as if the shape he gives my life, this deep fate he's handed me is melting away. And for what? For the sake of my own comfort? Because there's no such thing as a perfect solution? It'll be months before you realize you can put your coffee down safe from flinging by Walker, but by then he will be back at your place often. I find it horrible to take him back to his group home. He hates the driving him home drive. Even now, the departures feel like small deaths, as if the sun is slowly dimming. It's just a terrible drive, every time. It's first rate, as assisted living homes go. Well organized, well staffed, the 24-hour care walker needs. Clean. Clean is important. 
He lives there with seven other disabled children. I know his bedroom by heart. Blue-green walls, blonde wood chest of drawers, stickers of soccer balls on the wall, NASCAR bed sheets, the closet, military in its order, bins labeled shirts, pants, underpants, spare arm tubes. Three of them share the room. Marcus? Deaf, delayed, anxious but lively. Yusuf? Tall, skinny, delayed, quiet, sweet. sweet. And Walker, the most intellectually delayed of the three. Picture of Haley on his wall, picture of Olga, picture of his ma, picture of me, picture of a snowman, and a pair of boxing gloves traced out of purple paper. A boy who boxes his own ears turned into a picture. He's always been that. A boxer. A tough guy. He may be small, but he's rugged, and he has a bottomless capacity for pain. Katie, one of the women who works with Walker, finally devised a way to stop him from hitting himself. Empty Pringle cans reinforced with tongue depressors and electrician's tape. The first day we took him up to his new home, it's about uh, 40 minutes away by car, I remember coming back afterwards, driving in the car. Haley, Olga, Johanna, me, I'm driving. Nobody talking, nobody saying anything, but everybody intensely aware. You've just given up your child. Your child who needs you. And we get back to our house, and I keep thinking... uh, He spends a lot of time downstairs with Olga. They have a big playroom down there. He loves the basement. There's all this stuff that he can look into, scrabble around in. And I keep thinking, he's down there. He's down there. He's, He's in a corner looking for treasure. Our little pirate boy. It's hard to find. And then I realize... There's nothing down there now. That was the most. I still think if I was any kind of mother, he would still be at home. Mother's guilt. It's part of their body. It's not even guilt. It's um, Uh, sadness. The sadness of the mother. I just knew that if he left, um, this is going to sound really dramatic. If he left, I wouldn't be his mother anymore. I felt like I was handing him off, like he's not mine anymore. A sin against nature. I don't know about a sin against nature, just, um, just a decision with a profound impact for him and me and our relationship. Um, a turning point and no turning back. I picked me over him. You picked you over him. Yes, oh, that's the truth. See, I don't think that. I, I think no. that's the romantic. I, I, I did this equation, and no it. one's going to win. So who's going to lose the least is what it was. And Walker's in so well, many ways, it's easier Walker for seemed him to be able to, there, to live where he's as, not the least able person. Where there's there's a rhythm to the day that is his rhythm. Where where we are always trying to fit him into our rhythm. Walker seemed to be able to live as Walker in many places. So. I went with that. I don't think it's the wrong decision. As long as someone loves him every day, I don't care who it is. 
Now he's their boy. Will and... Will, Trish... Trish and Tina... Jermaine, just as he is my boy and Johanna's boy and Olga's boy. And my brother. He belongs more and more to all of us because he is the kind of boy that no one person can manage alone. That is the price and the marvel of his life. One question. Do you understand why you don't live here anymore? Do you like your group home? Do you like your life? Does he wonder where we are? Does he wake up in the middle of the night and miss us? Even when he's gone, he's here. He has a knack for worming his way into my brain the moment I sit down to write a letter or start to read a book, and the moment I hear him, I'm hijacked. His aura turns up everywhere, unexpectedly. In the lyrics of a Neil Young song at the gym. Without Walker in the house all the time, soaking up her every moment, Johanna starts writing more again, exercising. She takes compulsively to uh, crosswords, Sudoku, a a massive 2,000-piece jigsaw of Munch's The Scream. It takes a while to get to the point where, you know, you're each in your own trench. Um, And so it takes a while before you can come out of them again. So it wasn't like immediately we rediscovered our happiness from one another, but we did fight a lot less right off the bat. There's a lot more time, a lot more relaxed time. For a year before he moved out, I kept going to the doctor saying, I've got this pain in my stomach. You have no pain in your stomach. No, no, no. I can actually feel the pain. There's nothing there. And I was scoped left, right, center, and Nothing. And then as soon as Walker moved away and was happy, the pain went away. I hope he dies before I do. I do. I just want to... I just want to see the end of his story. I just want to be there for the whole thing with him. The thought that I can't stand is the thought of me dying and him still being out there because I don't know how it's going to be for him. I just want to be there for the whole ride with him. I don't know what that is. Love. Concern. Guilt. All of it. I don't want him to die tomorrow. (laughs) Or anytime soon, but I want to hold him when he dies. One of my secret death fantasies was to pack Walker into a baby backpack and take him high up into the mountains of Western Canada in winter, one of my favorite places on earth, and lie down in a snowbank and end it there quietly. I imagine the venture in complete detail. How I will pick a moment when Johanna is at a movie and Haley is at school. How I will get him out of the house and to the airport with all of his gear and the ski equipment. Unfortunately, that alone derails my death fantasy. If I can get through that nightmare, the airport with Walker and skis... I can survive anything. There's no need to kill myself. 
These days, I have another fantasy. In this fantasy, Walker lives in a village owned and inhabited by the disabled on their schedule, at their pace. And there's a ring of cabins around the community, so the able body can go and stay there for a few weeks at a time. And all they have to do is have breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day in the community. And once a week, they have to give someone like Walker a bath. I think three weeks in that community would change the way we approach the world. When I see the face of my boy, I see what is human and lovely and flawed at once. Walker is no angel, and neither am I. I can't bear to watch him bash himself every day, but I can try to understand why he does it. The more I struggle to face my limitations as a father, the less I want him to be different. Not just because we have a physical bond, a big, simple thing. Not just because he's taught me the difference between a real problem and a mere complaint. Not just because he makes me appreciate time and Haley and my wife and friends and all the sweetness that one day ebbs away. I have begun simply to love him as he is because... I have discovered that I can. That we can be who we are, weary dad and broken boy, without alteration or apology in the here and now. One question. Do you love us? Do you, Do you know, know that, that we, we love, love you? you? <laughs> Walker. Dancing in the living room with Haley, who is brilliant and tall and gorgeous and smart. She is a great dancer. And Walker is over the moon. <laughs> he is just so gone with happiness. When he opens his eyes and he observes, pay attention to that. His experience of Haley's physical grace, his sudden astonishment at his tall sister's beauty. Okay, okay. <laughs> When uh, Walker is happy, he's happy in a way that you overcome your initial feeling of what a kid should be or how a kid should look. His happiness is so infectious and so communicated that it, <laughs> that it does. It makes you realize that most of the time we have a very, a very narrow definition of what's okay or what's acceptable or what's good or what's happy. And Walker's made us see how many of the rules that we live by are simply made up. It is nearly impossible to take a good photograph of Walker. 
The trick is to wait for at least three things to happen at once. A moment when he's calm and his body is relaxed. A moment when he's not hitting himself. A moment when he's alert. Yeah, those, those moments don't happen often. And when one does, and you happen to have a camera on hand, and you manage to grab a photo before the moment evaporates, then maybe you get a picture like this. Our real treasures. Proof of the walker, we're convinced, is there. That was Boy in the Moon by Emile Scherer, adapted from Ian Brown's memoir. We'll be right back. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Laura Mullen here with Chris Tolley, and you're listening to Play Me on CBC Radio and Sirius XM. Emile adapted Ian's memoir to create the stage play by spending time with the Brown family to better understand their experience raising Walker. Chris got to speak with both writers and asked Ian how he was able to draw from his memories to write such a revealing memoir. Um... I, you know, I often hear novelists, I, I have interviewed a few novelists, and, you know, they always, especially the serious literary ones, you know, they always say, well, you know, uh, the, the book, uh, I did not write the book, uh, the book wrote me, you know, that uh, that it came from, with, I don't know where it came from, you know, I have no idea who the characters are, they're independent, you know. And I, when I've been interviewing them, I've been thinking... That is such a load of BS. I'm, I'm never, it's scenes and dialogue and details and point of view. You know, that's all there is to it. But I must say that I, I look back at this book now and I, there are passages. I mean, I remember the passages, and I, but I remember writing them, but I don't remember how I wrote them. I got, it came together in a way in my head. And I think, I mean, this will sound like too woo-woo for words, but I do think there was some communication going on not just from walker but from walker bounced off haley's brilliance you know bounced off her his mother's brilliance you know bounced back to me for somebody who doesn't have a voice who you know who we communicate by you know by clicking i will say hello walkie how you you know and and when he was a boy he used to go back, which I think meant, you know, I'm over here, dad, sort of thing. Now that he's 23, I come in, I, I still do it. I say, hey, walk, how you doing? And now I get, uh, which I think means, you know, fuck you, you know, <laughs> you, you old man, you know, what are you still doing that for? Get with the times, you know, it's, it's a really strange, you know, for a kid who doesn't talk very much or at all, he's, He's managed to put out a fair number of words here. He got a book. He's got a play. You know, he's, people are reading him. People are watching him. People are listening to him. Like, 
whoever his publicist is, <laughs> is a genius. Talking about voice, uh, Emil, in your stage production, the main character isn't even there. And that is a really bold choice to make. Again, that, that speaks to the power of theater. Mm-hmm. I think Walker is a continuous presence from the beginning to the very end of this play, as he should be. But he doesn't have to literally be there on stage for us to have an understanding, if only because part of, I think, who Walker is, is this question that Ian pursues from beginning to yeah. end. What is the value of his life? Is there something beyond the still pond mm-hmm. of, his, of, his, of the exterior? But, and it also, by not having Walker on, on the stage, which was an idea that really appealed to me immediately, but it kind of universalizes this, this issue. You know, so what is a child? What is a son? What? How much of that eminence can you know? I, I th- what was so brilliant about about that decision you made to have Walker not be there is that he can then be everywhere, and he can be everyone, and people can really understand that the disability. But in a in a strange way, disability is not about disability; it's about fragility, and fragility is in everybody's life, and the sitting in the theater you feel i mean i felt fragile and i think the audience feels fragile and that's that's universal and and finally you're allowed to feel it yeah i keep thinking about how with the play and in the process of writing the book it must have felt so vulnerable because you're you're talking about things that are so personal and honest and i'm wondering what was it like for you as a writer to approach such a personal subject it was terrifying and can i write about this can i really write about i don't know it just broke through sometimes you know i remember describing he had a friend the house he first lived in a kid who was a bit more alert but who was very shy and um used to play a video game on the TV. And Walker would Walker doesn't watch the TV, but he would walk over to the screen and he would stand in the way. And this guy used to, he would wait patiently for Walker to have whatever experience he was happening, and then he would move away. He, always, and he was a kid who would never meet your eye, but if you looked back at him slyly over, as you were leaving, you noticed that he was watching you go. He was a fantastic guy and so kind to Walker and I was so grateful to him and then he died he had one lung uh, which and anyway I I went to to uh, Walker had come back and this had happened a couple of days before and I remember saying thinking well should I acknowledge it like should I acknowledge that his friend died does he miss him I mean I and I thought, well, maybe I'll do it just in case. And so I walked in the room and I said, hey, walkie, you know, all this kind of thing. And uh, I said, I'm sorry, your friend died. No response. I went on, you know, he was a good guy. Remember how he used to do this? No response, no response, 10 minutes. And then finally Walker came over and he kind of, I don't know what he did, but he did something that made me think, Something had changed. The other day, I mean, he came home. Johanna put her bags down in the hall when she was home. She said, I've got to move those Walker will trip. She forgot. Walker tripped over. He scraped his knee. And the rest of the afternoon, every time he saw her, he'd go, huh, like this. You know, every time, every half hour, huh, 
Ha! Until finally at five o'clock in the afternoon, he doesn't go, huh? He walks over to Johanna and he sort of bumps her arm with his arm. And Johanna thought, my God, you know, he was pissed off. He held a grudge and he forgave me. But but in in language that, you know, it's first time, right? It's the new land. It's the first encounter. And sometimes, I'm sorry, this is such a wordy response, but sometimes figuring that when that stuff came clear, that made me really happy. And I would never want to rewrite it in any other way. Because if I could have that experience again, that that was, well, that felt fantastic. So human and yet so... Um, I don't know, enlightening, and it made me feel that I understood him a bit. Yeah. Uh, my question is now for Emil, can you just talk a little bit about some of the challenges? Like, I mean, it must be really difficult to transform such a personal memoir into a stage play, something that's theatrical. Yeah, that, that's a great question. If you if you'd seen my my home office, it, it would have been at the time I was working on the Boy in the Moon, plastered with sticky notes, because I would. In fact, even in this case, interestingly enough, different colored sticky notes, because in some cases I would have a different color just for the sounds that I knew I wanted to hear on stage that I thought could be effective. He talks about water, how Walker responds to water, that stuck with me. So even just hearing the sound of water on stage, uh, I think the clapping, of course, the, of Olga's clapping and the humming of "Do your ears hang low." Hmm. I know how difficult writing an adaptation can be because you have certain constraints. You have to stay within the world of the truth. But with fiction, you can do anything you want as long as it serves a story. So how do you find the balance between working with constraints and storytelling technique? At one level, it's quite clinical. Here I am dealing with a real family with a real, real struggles and yet I have to detach myself from it and ask, how can this best work on stage? And it becomes almost surgical. Let's take, there's a balance I talked about. So when we hear Johanna talk about the, this counterintuitive moment where she said, I hope Walker dies before I do, I said, wow, that, that's a bomb to deal with. And a moment later, not by chance, we have Ian, his own confession, but it's infused with humor. You know, if I can make it through the airport with Ian, excuse, I can make it through anything. So I don't have to, we don't have to kill ourselves. We'll be okay. We have survived <laughs> Pearson Airport. I I would like to end with one last question, which is the subtitle of the book is A Father's Search for His Disabled Boy. And what I'm wondering is, did you find him? And if so, where? Well, that's a big question to end with. I, I think I did find him. And I think I found him in... Um, I thought I'd find him in my mind. You know, I thought I'd find him, uh, that I'd figure it out, that I'd know how the mutation worked, the genetic thing would break down, and I'd be able to understand exactly what was missing and exactly what was, you know, there. And that never happened. Uh, it just became more and more and more confusing. To, to this day, his diagnosis is inexact because they can't, you know, there's 150 people who have this illness, right? So I would say I didn't find it in my head, but... You know, at the end of the book, um, we were waiting for an MRI. And we'd waited, I'd, we'd had two or three goes at it. And the doctor, when she discovered Walker was disabled, didn't want to administer the 
general anesthetic, and which you have to have to, for a kid like him to have an MRI because you got to stay still. Everything's complicated. And um, anyway, we were waiting in one of the... There's a bazillion hallways underneath the hospital complex in Toronto on University Avenue, and you can go for miles and miles. I think there was a guy who lived down there for a while, wasn't there? One? Anyway, the, we we were waiting, and Walker had a seizure. And uh, it was the first time I'd ever seen him have a seizure. And he had it in my arms. And I remember thinking, you know, well, I know what to do. I have to wait. And... And it made me think, you know, if he dies, this is what it's going to be like. You know, you're going to wait and he'll go away. And at that moment, I realized, you know, I, he was, when he fell, when he swooned, he looked at me and I could see him aiming for me. It was the most intentional thing I'd seen at that point. He was, he was like falling, like, like a, I don't know, like a stack of plates falling over, you know, just going from the, from the head to the feet. And he came into my arms and he was looking at me and I thought, okay, you just keep looking. And it happened. We did this thing together, you know, and I knew I knew I loved him, and I knew at that moment that he knew I loved him enough to trust me to take him into my arms. And we did that together. That's not a big intellectual revelation, but it was a it was a big revelation in my heart, you know, for that I'd, love is um, never predictable. It never takes just one form, and it never. You never find it where you're certain you're going to find it. You find it in all the places you never expected it to show up. And that was, you know, when you have a kid who can't express himself and you discover love is there anyway, not just from him, but from you too, that you are capable of it. That's pretty big. You know, that feels, and then you realize that it's, it's been there in your daughter and your wife and it's, it's true to all of us. And, you know, the fact that it translates to, from a book, which a few people read to a play, which people can see and experience with their whole bodies. I don't know. I find it pretty, I hate to use this word as well, but I find that pretty optimistic pretty reassuring I think that moment when you two were looking at each other is that moment that all parents long for in their children and I think that's what makes this story so universal thank you both of you that was Emile Cher and Ian Brown talking about the book-turned-play, The Boy in the Moon. You can hear the play and the full interview on Play Me by going to CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. And each week we take a moment for our Play Me picks, where we recommend a play from our podcast. Laura, what do you have for us? Well, since we're fully in Halloween mode, I'm recommending Mizuko, or Water Baby, by Hiro Kanagawa. 
The play is a traditional Japanese ghost tale about a couple that retreats to their lakeside cottage during the pandemic, but is haunted by a most unwelcome visitor. And I have to say, even though I've read the play and I attended the recording, the play still manages to scare the heck out of me. So it's perfect for this time of year. You can find Mizuko in the Quarantine Chronicles series on Play Me. And speaking of Halloween, we'll be back next week with a blood-curdling thriller, Three Women of Swatow, by Chloe Hung. When a mother accidentally kills her husband, three generations of women must come together to solve a bloody situation. The Boy in the Moon featured David Storch, Lisa Repa Martel, and Kelly McNamee. Chris Abraham directed the original theatrical production. The sound design and edit are by Chris Tolley. It also featured some original music and sound design from the theatrical version of the play by Thomas Ryder Payne. The adaptation of The Boy in the Moon was commissioned by the Belfry Theatre and the Great Canadian Theatre Company. It was developed and premiered at the Great Canadian Theatre Company with the support of the Charles Dolphin Tribute Fund. It was revised for a second production with the support of Crow's Theatre. Thanks for listening. Play Me is produced by Laura Mullen and Chris Tolley in partnership with CBC Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think about Play Me. You can email us at playme at cbc.ca. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Theatre or Instagram at PlayMePodcast. A special thanks to our CBC producers, Fabiola Melendez-Carletti, Cecil Fernandez, and Tanya Springer. The executive producer of CBC Podcasts is R.F. Norani. Our senior director is Leslie Merklinger. Play Me is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Play Me is an Expec Theatre production. For more information about our plays, please visit playmepodcast.com. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.